Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Sometimes whenever you're preaching through a book of the Bible or doing exposition, there are events on the calendar that arise, um, and they don't uh, always fit well, and it's appropriate to go away from that exposition to deal with, with whatever is obvious. Uh, if you're preaching expositionally through the book of Leviticus, and you get to Leviticus 9 or you know 16 or somewhere in there with the you know, the, the cleansing of a leper, and it's Easter, it's probably a good time to go away from Leviticus and preach the resurrection. Um, but in the book of Romans, we're all about Jesus Christ, and uh, there's no way that I could leave us with the curse of Adam without turning to Christ before we, we enter next week, uh, Christmas Eve, and then uh, on Christmas Sunday, we'll be looking at the, the coming of, of Christ. And God providentially has brought us to verses 15 through 17 where we can look at the difference between Adam and Christ. And for two weeks now, we have been walking through this very helpful and yet challenging passage where, where Paul compares and contrasts mankind's union with Adam, the, the very first man, and then our union as believers with, with Jesus Christ. And we said the theology of this passage is, is very straightforward. It's not hard to see. It's, it's right here in the passage. There's Adam, and there's what he did, and there's the results, and then there's Christ and what he did, and then the, then the result. That, that's pretty plain in this passage. But, but trying to follow Paul as he writes about it takes some, some careful attention. And beyond that, like last week, uh, some of the implications of the passage uh, weighed us into, into deeper waters. Uh, I mean, Paul says, in Adam all die, but in Christ all live. That, that's not hard to understand or grasp, but the, but the implication from that, that every person, even from conception, is judged in Adam, is a weighty truth. We're confronted with many questions whenever we come to a passage like, like, like that, that we have to let the Bible answer instead of our own hearts or human philosophy, which is woefully insufficient to deal with, with eternal types of, of questions. Questions like, how can God judge everyone because of one man's sin? I mean, what about my own sin? How does he deal with that? Or, or as we said, even questions like, what about people who don't yet have the capacity to sin willfully or or don't have the law, or a clear command from, from God. Are they judged as sinners before God? If so, how? And we saw last week, verses 13 and 14, answers those questions. Well, today, Paul's going to take a step further and introduce some additional truths in verses 15 and 17. This time, though, he's going to turn the coin over and look at the results of the work of Christ. And and not Adam. But he's going to use, he's going to use Adam as, as what, what Jesus is compared to, because he was, he was first. And Paul's goal in this entire section, going all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 5, is your security, your assurance. I mean, he obliterates your self-security in chapters 1, 2, and 3, because God does not want you to think that you're saved if you're not but if you are in Christ and you have come to Him and you have been regenerated and born again and the Spirit of God lives in you, God wants you to be eternally secure and know that, that you are 
And so he's been giving this unshakable assurance all the way back from verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And, and, and it's, a, it's a grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the, of the glorification that's, that's coming. He teaches us in verses 1 through 11 this certainty because our relationship to God has changed in justification. And that has many blessings accompanied with it. But now in verse 12 through 21, the section that we're in, he keeps this theme of security and assurance by showing us how our relationship to Adam has changed. And that's been replaced by this union with Jesus Christ. We were once in Adam and condemned in him, and now we stand justified being in Christ, and we reign in life through, through him. And that shift brought a completely new set of outcomes. Instead of judgment and death that we had under Adam, we now have grace and life through Christ. I mean, that's the heart of, of this passage, accompanied with similarities and contrasts between these two men who tower over all of, of humanity. We, we've said this passage is a, is a macro look at, at humanity, specifically how Adam's fall and his headship affected every person born after him. And in the panorama of history from the Garden of Eden to heaven, Adam stands as, as head and his, his nature was passed to us seminally and the, his judgment falls on us federally and he stands until a new figure comes, which is the whole point of Christmas, the anticipation. He's finally here. He's come. The one that was promised, the one who is in the likeness of Adam yet without sin. And that man is Jesus Christ. And at God's appointed time, the last Adam came, and those who are born again in him now have a new nature, not an old one, and they have a new destiny, not an old condemnation. If you want to say, you want to say it simply, we said there are two men marked by two acts that bring two very different results. And today we're going to look at the difference between them. Now, remind you how this passage lays out um, repetition is helpful, but in case you weren't here, because this, this will help you as you're following Paul's thought. The comparison begins in verse 12. Look, look if you would, at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So that's his, his launching salvo. Sin entered through Adam, death, came because of sin, and death spread to all people because all sinned. That's the first half of a comparison. You would expect to see just as through one man, even so through the other man. And, and Paul intends to complete that comparison, and he doesn't, though, until verse 18. Right down to verse 18. Here's where he picks his thought back up. Midway through verse 18. For though through one man's disobedience there were many made sinners, even so... Through the obedience of the one, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. So there's the other side of his comparison that he begins in verse 12. But as Paul starts writing, and he starts the comparison, I'm going to talk about Adam and what he brought into the world, and he gets to the end, and death came to all men, and all sinned. He's like, I think I need to explain a little bit more before I give the other, the other side of the, of the coin. I mean, he was convinced that we were not likely to fully grasp what he meant by, by, by the depth of his statement. I mean, and he doesn't want us to be confused. And so 
We might think that all sin only meant all of us sinned individually. And we might forget what stands behind our uh, individual sin is the original sin of Adam. And so in verse 13, there's this long dash or a parenthetical statement, which is a fancy word for a purposeful rabbit trail. Have you ever, you ever done that? You start talking and you get to a point, and I think I need to say a little bit more before I... Br-, and that's exactly what Paul does here. So verse 13. What do I mean all sinned in Adam and individually? How is that possible? Let me explain. Verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. This is what we looked at last week. There are three evidences that prove the comprehensive reach of Adam's sin. Sin's presence was there even before the law came to mark our individual sins. And that's proven by death's universal reign apart from the law. And this headship of Adam foreshadows this unmistakable representation of Christ. Adam was a type of Christ. And what was unclear is now very clear. And so you would expect Paul to then continue with his point of verse 12, but he doesn't. Once again, Paul gets to the end of his statement in verse 13, uh, 14, I should say. Adam is a type of Christ, and once again, he thinks further qu- uh, clarification is needed. I mean, Adam and Christ are similar in their form. That's what he's saying. The same way that God deals with humanity through Adam is the same way he'll deal with the redeemed through Christ. Both stand as head over, over people. Paul's thinking as he's writing, I mean, they're, but they're not the same on every level. I mean, they're, the, they're, the, they're similar in that way, but there's a, a number of ways that they're very, very different. And so in verses 15 through 17, which we'll look at today, Paul explains the differences between them. This is like a rabbit trail within a rabbit trail, which is why it seems so hard to, to follow unless you pay attention to what Paul is doing. Look, look at verse 15 and, and, and 17. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more. And then he begins the contrast. It's like saying, don't misunderstand me, there's similarities and differences. How? Well, for one, the free gift is not like the transgression. And then he explains exactly how. Three specific ways over the next verses. Um, general comparison, yes. Specific comparison, they're, they're very different. And then he picks back up his... Original thought in verse 18. Verses 20 and 21 is an explanation of the law that he brings up in verse 13. That's how the passage lays out for us. And today we're going to look at this great comparison that Paul makes, what we're titling the greatest comparison ever made because the stakes are so high, where Paul compares the results of Adam and the results of Christ. One is much greater than the other. And so Paul shows us three ways that Christ's grace is greater than Adam's sin. Doesn't that sound like an encouraging topic, grace that's greater than sin? It's because it is. It's right here in the passage. Christ's grace has a greater power, it has a greater effect, and it has a greater outcome. And he has to show you the great power and the great effect and the great outcome of Adam's sin, so you can grasp the greater power and the greater effect and the greater outcome of Christ's work, which is 
why this passage is set up the way that it is. There's a greater power, a greater effect, and a greater outcome. Let, let's, let's watch and walk through this passage and see, see, how, he, see how he does that. It, it has a greater power. The first way Christ's grace is greater than Adam's sin is it has a greater power. Look, look if you would at verse 15. He says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. What do I mean? For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. I mean, Paul starts here by making his statement. He says the free gift is not like the transgression. And then he begins to describe how, which is his main point that he wants to make. The two are different. He said in verse 14, Adam is a tupas, or a prototype of Christ. He's, a, he's like a copy, and Jesus is going to come along and represent Adam in a, in, a, in a similar way. And what he means is the same way that the guilt of Adam was transferred to other people, so the righteousness of God will be reckoned in the same way through one man, Jesus Christ. I mean, just as Adam's failing work affects all in him, Paul says there's another figure coming and his victorious work will affect all in him as well. Adam's the prototype of the original creation, therefore the fall, and Christ is the head of the new creation and, and salvation. Both stand as head over humanity. But now, as quickly as he says that, he follows that there are some major differences. And the first one is that Christ's work is greater, the strength, his strength is greater than, than Adam's. And you can see that right in the middle of the verse, verse 15. Much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace uh, abound. I mean, Paul says both are strong. I mean, think about this. With Adam's one single transgression, many died. In fact, all of humanity died after, after Adam. I mean, that's a pretty powerful effect, isn't it? But Christ's effect is much more. It's even more powerful than, than Adam's. Our union with him is greater than our original union with Adam in its potency. And notice that there's the offense of Adam, the transgression of Adam, and then there's the free gift of Christ. There's a comparison all the way through here. I mean, you can see even in the words that communicates a significant difference. I mean, one is earned, one is based on works... The other is gifted or, or granted. One is a wage. One is a present. One is based on an act of disobedience. The other is based on God's choice in grace. And, and don't miss what's buried at first glance here in this sweeping statement. I mean, he says Adam's, Adam transgressed individually, but many people died. That's what he says in verse 15. And if there was, uh, if there was no original sin then God's judging of mankind through in God's judging of mankind through Adam, then this would have said Adam sinned and Adam died. But it says Adam sinned and all men died. Many died, which he tells us is all men in, in the previous verses. And wherever you can find Paul talking about individual sins, like at the end of verse twelve, he's clearly talking about Adam's sin right now. The effect of Adam's sin. Paul says there's something prior to our individual sin that undergirds it, that explains it. And because of Adam's sin, human beings enter the world spiritually dead. And that wide-sweeping and powerful effect is now contrasted to the grace of Christ. In what way, Paul? Look at verse 15. 
But the free gift is not like the transgression. There's a statement. For if by the transgression of the one many died, that's pretty powerful, much more, whatever I'm getting ready to say is going to be even more powerful, did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. It's like, it's like Paul raises his voice here in the middle part of the verse. Much more did, did the grace of God. I mean, Tom Schreiner says Paul piles up terms here to communicate the richness and the extent of Christ's work. I mean, it's like he's moved uh, to astonishment when he considers the, the freedom with which God dispenses this grace and the extent of the grace, how far it goes, how deep it goes, how much it covers. And while Adam wreaked havoc on the world through sin, the work of Christ's effects is much more significant. Why? How? How is it more significant? It's because it doesn't just counter Adam's sin. It actually undoes what Adam accomplished or what Adam brought. And in the next few verses, he's going to explain. His point is not that it's like tit for tat, communicating like Adam and Jesus played this cosmic tennis match. Adam's up first, so... And then Jesus appears, and he knocks the ball back to Adam. That's not what he's presenting here. It's not like Jesus and Adam are playing this uh, humanity tic-tac-toe, where Adam goes first, and he puts the circle in the, in the middle square, and then Jesus brings it back to the, the cat scratched it, or however you say that. I mean, Paul is saying that Jesus removes the O that Adam put in the center box, and Jesus replaces every box with a cross. I mean, he puts his X in every single one. I mean, Jesus reverses the effects of Adam's sin, Paul says. That's how it's much more. And he provides something totally different than what was there before. I mean, it's not just the removal of the negative consequences of Adam's sin or our sin. It's the adding of the positive righteousness of Christ. Jesus didn't simply remove your sin on the cross, as massive as that is. That was surely needed... You have to have somebody pay for your sin. Either you do or Christ does. But beyond that, Jesus provided for you the record of righteousness that you need to actually enter into heaven. He didn't just clean your slate. He added the record of righteousness to you. I mean, you see the difference. Think of it this way. I mean, it's one thing to walk uh, uh, along an alley and, and throw a bunch of ink, a bunch of ink on the wall. It's another thing to come along and clean it and then paint the Mona Lisa on it. One writer said, it's one thing to blemish what is beautiful. That's what Adam did. But it's something much harder to put straight what is already crooked. That's the much more of Christ. I mean, Jesus didn't just repolish the diamond that Adam scarred, one said. He made the gem more glorious than its original condition. I mean, Jesus didn't just heal the withered hand we received from Adam. He recreated it. I mean, not simply to a pre-fall state. We're not just remade in like, like, like Adam was in his innocence before he fell. We're remade in Jesus Christ. He, he brings it to a, uh, by a future promise to a glorified state. That's also the answer to the question that you may have had or may have heard other, others ask. I mean... Why did God let the fall happen to begin with? Have you ever asked that question or thought about it? I mean, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and He is, 
and he knows everything, and he can do anything, I mean, why did he put the tree there to begin with, knowing exactly what Adam was, was going to do? I mean, why did God allow Adam to, to fall, knowing that then sin and evil would, would enter in, into the world? Well, we know God's not blamable for evil or, or sin. That's what James tells us very clearly. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his, by his, his own lust. That's what James says. You can't blame God. I mean, like sunlight shines on a trash dump, God and evil cohabitate. I mean, God shines sovereign over the, over the evil, and he's untouched by the evil, but they're both there. But he clearly could have stopped it, right? I mean, and even now, God could stop evil and sin, but he doesn't, so why? Well, the answer is, is not so Adam could choose God by his own free will as if human volition is the most important thing in the universe. You may have heard that explanation before. Well, God allowed it to happen, so Adam would choose God by his own volition and his own free will. And, and he didn't choose God, did he? <laughs> he fell. Human volition is not the most important thing in the universe. You know who or what's the most important thing in the universe? God. He's the most important thing in the universe. And his glory is, the, is what creation is all about, not your free will. I mean, now some of that is left to the mysteries of heaven because there's, you know, things are past our ability to figure out. But, but Paul implies here that the reason that God allowed the fall and Adam's transgression is because what Jesus would recreate when he came would be even better than it was if the fall and Adam never happened to begin with. And in the end, would God, God would get even more glory after the fall through redemption than without it. And you can see that even in the terms that Paul uses for the, for the work. Look at verse 15. He says, But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Now what would you expect the, the contrast uh, to be for death? I mean, he says, for if by the transgression of the one many died. What, what would you expect the, the contrast to many dying be? I mean, if Christ is going to go on the other side and contrast death, I mean, what would you expect the other side of the coin of Adam's deadly effect to, to, to result? I mean, somebody give me the opposite of, of death, I would say life, right? I mean, death, life. But notice that's not what Paul says here. He aims higher than that because the work of Christ does greater things. He, he doesn't contrast death with life. He contrasts, death, he contrasts death with grace. He aims higher because the work of Christ is, does greater things than just bringing, bringing the opposite of Adam's worth. It, uh, work. He, he says Jesus, what Jesus brought was the grace of God, which, explains the, which he explains is a gift from Jesus himself. That gift from, from, from God, uh, that, that grace from God, is the gift of grace from, from Jesus himself, and that abounds to many. So, so what is this grace? What is this gift? What's the simple definition of grace that, that you've heard many times over? I mean, 
God's grace means His unmerited favor. And that's true. But that's pretty generic to me. What does that mean, God's unmerited favor? What exactly does it do? I mean, what does this favor bring? Well, well, Paul says this grace here from one angle is power. It's something that conquers. He says the, the grace is not just favor, it, it acts. He says God's power, it, it's God's power that reverses the consequences of Adam's sin. That, that's what grace does. And this grace overflows. It, it abounds. It, it completely swallows up. It doesn't just remove it. It replaces what was there with a, with a completely new record. And I don't know about you, but I needed a new record. I, I need something new. I, I didn't need somebody to, to come along and just rearrange the deck chairs on my Titanic. I don't need somebody to come along and just grade on a curve and add a few points to my report card. I need a completely new record. It means that the God who was once against you is now for you. That's what this grace means. And He's proactively dealing with you in this new way. It's grace that not only forgives your sin, but empowers you to do right. It doesn't just remove the negative, it adds the positive. It doesn't just forgive you for stealing. It motivates you to work with your hands. That's what this grace does. It doesn't just forgive you for lust. It it grants you desires to love your wife as a one-woman man. That's what this grace does. It doesn't just cleanse you from hating your enemy or, or someone who has wronged you. It grants you the ability and actually implants the impulse of love in your heart for that same person. And that's supernatural. You see the difference? There's nothing else that the grace of nothing else but the but the grace of God that can do that. I mean, you might find something, some self-discipline that will that will help you stop something. I mean, you'll you'll read about um, movie stars or whoever they go through the ten steps or twelve steps or whatever it is, and they stop drugs or or, or you know whatever. You you might find something that will help you stop something. You might even find something that will help you start something. But you'll not find anything that will forgive you for what you've already done wrong. And that's only half of the equation. You still don't have the power to do right. You still don't have the desire or the ability to do it. And the grace of God gives you that and changes you. You not only put off, but you also put on, to use the words of Colossians. And if that's actually what happens in Christ, that that your relationship to Adam has changed through him, and that brings a completely different relationship to where the the first one's not even on your record anymore, and now you're empowered by by this grace. This grace is is super abundant. It abounds over all of that. If that's the case, then how could you not have security? I mean, how can you not have assurance? Assurance that this same one is not going to judge you one day whenever you stand before him. If he did all of this and changed you in that fundamental way, then then how could there be a question? How could you not be certain that the sin and death that was once there will never be able to reach you again because you have been permanently and completely changed and all of that has been defeated by Jesus Christ and replaced with this gift of of grace? That's Paul's argument. That's way more powerful than Adam's sin that he passed to us. But, but there's, there's also a, 
another difference, which is this greater effect. The second way that Christ's grace is, is greater than, than Adam's sin is it has a, a, a greater effect, a greater power, but there's also a greater effect. Look at verse 16. He continues his thought. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Notice he's still comparing here. The gift that I just described in verse 15 is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. He's comparing the effect here, and he says Christ's work has a, has a greater effect. I mean, again, Paul's very clear he's comparing and that they're very different. One's greater than the other. But notice how the work of Christ is shown to be greater in this verse, because that, that's the key. Paul says here that it only took one sin from Adam to bring condemnation. But the free gift of Christ covers many transgressions. Do you see that in this verse? He says judgment arose from one transgression. On the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions. Bringing justification. Justification over many transgressions. That was the effect of Adam's single transgression. One sin damned the whole human race. MacArthur said, God hates sin so much that it only took one sin to condemn the entire human race and separate them from him. It was not that Adam's first sin was worse than any other sin that Adam committed later, it was simply the, that the first sin was sin. I mean, you ever wondered what was so bad about eating fruit from a tree? I mean, was, is that really that bad? I mean, bad enough to, to die to, and then to condemn all humanity after that? Now, you have to be careful. Even asking that question can be dangerous depending upon your, your attitude of your inquiry. I mean, if it's to learn or to gain knowledge, that's one thing. But if it's to stand as judge over God in your questioning, that, that's another. I mean, some people ask questions not to get the answer, but because they think their question somehow stumps the Bible or, or proves that they're smarter than, than God or you, which that wouldn't be hard for any of us. You can find people that are smarter than, than us. I mean, you've been there before. I mean, Talk to that person. Oh, yeah, well, well, how did Noah get all those animals on the ark? Or if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? Or, or some seemingly small discrepancy that no one has seen, that they saw, that they think disproves everything, while they're clearly rejecting all the very clear passages of the Bible and, and living like a hellion. I mean, the Bible is an anvil that has worn out many hammers, as it's said, and, and God's not afraid of any question that your little pea brain can ask. But he is offended by a mocker who thinks that they can use their little philosophical questions to exalt themselves above the Creator. The reason Adam's single sin brought condemnation to all had nothing to do with fruit. It was all about who gave the command. It was an edict from God. God could have said, 
Don't cross this line. Don't walk down this path. Don't eat from these ten trees. I mean, why does it take eternity in hell to pay for the sins? Why does it take eternity to pay for the sins of a finite person that lives, if we're lucky, 80 plus years? Or one sin of one man in, in the garden? It's because you're sinning against an infinite being who is above all beings. That's why it's so serious. It's not the act of transgression alone. It's who you're acting against. But do you know what else this verse says? Which is even more breathtaking than than that about how much God hates sin. Look at verse 16 again. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. At the end, on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. I mean, the second truth... The second half of this verse teaches something even more amazing. Greater than God's hatred of sin is His compassionate love for the sinner. I mean, despite the fact that God hates sin so much that only one sin could damn the whole human race, His loving grace towards man is so great that He provides not only for the redemption of that one man and that one sin, but redemption for all other men and all of their sins. And that's where the extent and the effect is shining brightly in this verse. One sin of Adam brought condemnation to all. One free gift of Christ covered many transgressions, which resulted in us being justified before God. One sin brought death to all. One gift covered all the sins of all those that believe. Do you realize what this verse says? It says we cannot sin more than the cross can pay for. Let that sink into me. That's what Paul says here. We cannot out-sin grace. Grace is greater than Adam's sin, his one sin. Grace is greater than mankind's sin, individual sins, many sins. Grace is greater than all of my sin. You can't sin more than the cross can pay for. Now, you can trample that grace underfoot, and you can take it for granted, and you can reject it and dismiss it, And you can't deceive yourself that thinking that God has forgiven you when you're still in your sin. But you cannot sin more than grace can cover. And that grace brings a greater outcome for life as well, which is the the last one. The third way, Christ's grace is greater than Adam's sin, is it has a greater outcome. Look if you would at verse 17. He says, for if, the trans, uh, for if by the transgression of the one, he's still in the comparison business here, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul continues his contrast, and he brings back this much more language, and he's piling up adjectives and descriptive terms again. 
this abundance of grace, this gift of righteousness, this reign in life. He returns to this, this word reign from verse 14. Look back at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned. And he picks back up this same theme here again. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace will reign. There's a lot of similarities between Adam and Christ. They've both been appointed by God as the head of people. Adam, the first man. Each represent that people. People fall in Adam and fall on their own. Each pass on the effects of their work. And since Adam was first, Adam, in a sense, was a type of Christ who was to come. Adam stands until the last Adam comes on the scene at God's appointed time. That's how they parallel each other, but there are also massive differences, including the outcome that each one brings. Now, I mean, in an Adam, death reigns through him. And again, here is another reference to original sin. The reign of death comes through the one. But much more, life reigns through the one Jesus Christ. Oh, oh wait, is that what it says? Look at what it says. But much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the, the one. Here is another place where you would expect a parallel comparison. But remember, this is not a parallel comparison. There are similarities, but there are massive differences. This is not an exact parallel, which is why Paul has us on this rabbit trail to begin with, to show us that Christ brings something greater. Notice who is reigning in Christ. Death is reigning in Adam. Notice who is reigning in this second half of the verse. It's not sin. It's not even life. It's us. We're the ones reigning in this second half. Do you see that? Those who have received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Those will reign in life. And in Jesus, we aren't just recovered from the fall. We, we don't just have the consequences removed. We're not just brought back to flush or, or our, our account zero. We're made to reign in, in Christ, both now and in the future. I mean, anytime Paul uses this, this concept of, of reigning, in, in Romans, in a positive sense. He's talking about a future reign in, in the kingdom. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Will we also reign in life now through the power of Jesus Christ? You know what this says? It says we're no longer victims of the fall. We're victors in Jesus Christ. You see the parallel here? Adam was God's first representative, and he was placed here to reign over creation. He was placed here to take dominion, to be, to be fruitful and multiply, be my representative, reign over creation. He fell and, 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 and plunged all of humanity, no longer able to reign. He, he, he prohibits us from being able to reign. Now Adam is reigned over by sin and death. And Jesus doesn't just remove the reign of sin and death. In Christ, he actually exalts us back to the position of reigning, not just over earth, but over all of creation. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
we're no longer reigning over the earth. We're reigning over a future kingdom in, in Christ. In Jesus Christ, we've not only been made heirs of the earth, but all of heaven in the universe, and now we reign with him. You see how that's greater than if the fall ever happened? You see how God gets more glory this way, and you get more grace this way? You know, just reigning over creation, you're reigning with God. And he uses a very familiar term to describe it all. Look at the end of verse 16. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. He hasn't talked about justification since all the way back like in verse 1. And he brings it in again before he introduces this new reign. Lord Jones says, Notice Paul returns to the word that he began with, justification. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. And now he says here, uh, on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification, and in that justification we reign. It's not that we're forgiven, Lloyd-Jones, but over and above being forgiven, the righteousness of the righteous Jesus Christ is put to our account it's put upon us. Unfallen Adam was righteous, but it was his own righteousness as a created being. It was the righteousness of man. But you and I are not merely given back human righteousness. We are given the righteousness of God himself. You see the difference? Dayan Boyce said, if Adam had remained in a state of righteousness... Adam was the only one that had true free will, and he's not tainted by sin at all. He has free volition. He can choose or not to choose. And if Adam had always chosen right in that state of innocence, then Adam would have righteousness of his own. And then Adam would reign, had reigned in that state of righteousness, and he could have sung, In my own righteousness I stand, soon to join God's glorious band. But Adam didn't stand in human righteousness. He fell. And Paul says those who are in Christ now stand in the Lord. And we sing, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming world in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. And the key to all of this is whether you're in Adam or whether you're in Christ. You don't have to do a single thing to be in Adam. You're born in Adam. And this is the truth for those who reign through him. So the question that you should be asking is, how do I get into Christ if I'm born, out of, born in Adam? Well, verse 17 actually gives you a summary of that. Look at verse 17 again. He says, for if by the righteousness of the one, death reigned through the one, watch this, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, those who receive it. You receive it. It's for those who respond to God's gracious offer, and it's only for those. And that's what Paul has 
been showing us or showed us in the previous chapters. It starts by recognizing your need. In chapter 1, you, you don't worship God. You worship a God made in your own image. So you worship yourself, ultimately. You don't worship the God of, of heaven. And in chapter 2, if you're religious, you acknowledge what God says about himself. If you're, Your religion doesn't impress God in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't manipulate him in any way. It doesn't cover your sin. I mean, if you're looking to your morality or your church attendance or whatever else, you're still in your sin. That's what chapter 2 says. In fact, every human being is under sin, in the bondage to, to sin. There's none righteous, all have sinned. There's none who understand. There's none who seek after God. That's chapter 3. And if you recognize that and it brings you to acknowledge that you deserve judgment, then the second thing you do is cry out to God for mercy. May God be merciful to me, a sinner. There's no magic tricks. There's no magic words or prayers, A, B, C, or say these words, repeat after me. It's a genuine cry to God for mercy because you see the condition that, that you're in. You see God and you see yourself and you say, I need mercy. That's where it starts. And as you do that, then God shows you the mercy that he's already extended to you in the gospel. You begin to see it. You were once blind, but now you see. You, you begin to say, whoa, there's hope here. I mean, there actually could be forgiveness of sins here. And Jesus took your place in judgment. You begin to see that the God of very God lived righteously for you and that his saving work is freely offered. Not through religion, but through, through repentance. And then you say, I, I, I believe. You say, I see it. I I didn't before, but, but, but now I do. I mean, I, I believe that, that Jesus is who he said he was, and he took my place, and, and because of that, God's, God forgives me. And God accepts me in Christ. And so then you confess with your mouth what you already believe in your heart, that God, that Jesus died and he rose for you. And then you pick up your bed and you walk. You, you desire to live for him and you go forward and you do that. You, you live for him. That, that's how you get out of Adam into Christ. So what about it? You've already received Adam's disease, his curse, his judgment. And you can't blame him because you've sinned as well. Will you now receive the gift of Christ, His grace, and His life. Let's pray.